I love a good story. Um, so if you have a good story, and I mean like a really good story, don't, don't just tell me you have a good story, because a lot of people think like, this is a great story. It might be great to you, but it might not be to me. So if you have a great story, I, I would love to hear it. And if the story has at least some elements of being unbelievable, even better. Even better. And here's what I'll promise you if you tell me that kind of a story. If it's got some elements of being unbelievable, I will want to believe you. Depending on the story, I, I will, uh, it may take a lot of belief on my part, but I will want to believe you. But if it's unbelievable enough, I might just settle at a point where I don't actually believe you, but I will still admit to you that it's a great story. I don't think it's true, but it's a, a great story. And that might seem unfair, but there's something you can do to help me believe it. If you give me some backstory, some context, some background information that makes the story more believable, I'll come around. Let me give you an example. I don't seem like a, a fisherman to you, uh, especially those of you that know me well. You would not guess that I am any sort of accomplished fisherman by any stretch. So if I told you I recently went fishing and caught a fish that was so huge I could barely even believe it, even though I'm the one that caught it, you probably wouldn't believe me. And it probably wouldn't help if I said, no, no, really, I, I caught it. Yep, I absolutely, there's no picture or anything, but I caught it. And nobody else was there. It just was happened to be nobody else was there. So nobody can independently confirm that it happened. But you should believe me anyway. That might not help. On the other hand, if I told you that growing up, my grandfather took me fishing as often as he could, you might start to believe that maybe it's possible. If I told you we fished in lakes and in creeks and in ponds and in any body of water that we came across, you might start to believe me. If I told you that there were days that we threw the, the fishing poles and the tackle boxes in the car even though we were not going anywhere near anywhere we normally would fish, just in case, you might start to believe. You see, the backstory, my backstory, makes my fish story more believable. Now, just for the sake of transparency, I did, I did catch a fish not that long ago, um, and it was about that big. So, um, <laughs> I exaggerated that part, my bad. But I think you get my point. You see, the, the story of the birth of Jesus that we find in the New Testament of Scripture, it really is pretty unbelievable. But when we begin to, to look at the backstory, as we spent so much time doing last Sunday, part of what ends up making the story of the birth of Jesus so believable is the remarkable nature of everything that led up to it. Because just to remind you, if you were here, or to catch you up, if you weren't, the Christmas story doesn't begin with a young couple trying to figure out where to have a baby, as we so often do start the story that way, it begins with an older couple wondering if they'll ever have a baby. It began with God making a promise to Abraham, actually before he was even known as Abraham. And it's recorded all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. And the scriptures are on the insert in your bulletin. They'll be on the screen as well, and I encourage you to follow along here. Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. A promise that God made that through Abraham, every nation, every tribe, every person would be blessed. God saw the world needed Something needed this blessing. And so he made this extraordinary promise 
because the world, what they really needed was Christmas. And so that's what we talked about last week, but as it turned out, it wasn't just the world that needed Christmas, that needed that promise. What we'll talk about for the next several minutes, and this may sound a little bit weird, but I think you'll understand in a few minutes, God needed Christmas. See, parents will probably understand this better than anyone else, so if you're not a parent, I want you to put yourselves in the shoes of a parent for just a moment. Most parents at some point have, have had these thoughts, thoughts like these. I wish my kids understood how much I love them. I wish they understood how much I love them. I wish my kids understood how much I really do care for them. I wish my kids would stop believing that I lay in bed at night trying to come up with ways to make their lives miserable. Some of us have had to have those thoughts because it sure seems like they believe that's what we do. I wish my kids understood that I really do have their best interest in mind and at heart, even if they don't understand what I want them to do or not to do, or why I want them to do that or not to do that. Those thoughts will come up if they haven't already, if you're a parent or someday you are. Some parents have even tried to to explain those things to their kids. They've tried to express those things to their kids, but those kinds of conversations often are only met with eyes that are more glazed over than all the donuts at Krispy Kreme. Because it's just really hard to convey, this is how I really feel about you. This is how I really see you. And that's what we want our kids to know. We want our kids to know how we see them, not how they assume we see them or how we think they see them, but the way that we actually see them. And it's apparent to me that our Heavenly Father, that God the Father, felt the same way. It's one thing for me to look at my eight-year-old and, and try to express that I have her best interest in mind. That's tough enough, but think about God's challenge. God is seemingly unknowable. He's spirit. How, how does God, the creator of the heavens and earth and everything, how does he who we can't physically see communicate how he feels about his children? His children who happen to live in a world that over time has, has turned inward, have turned their back on God, have turned toward material things. How does God communicate his love for his children? And the answer is Christmas. We read this verse last week, and I kind of want to start here again. It's words of Paul, Paul who himself started off as a a Christian hater, uh, to put it simply. He he could not stand the followers of Jesus. In fact, he wanted to wipe them off the face of the earth. That was his goal. Later on, he became a follower of Jesus, one one of the greatest flips ever. Paul was a Pharisee. He was a very well educated, very bright guy, especially when it came to the Jewish scriptures. And once he became a follower of Jesus, what happened was Paul began to see those Jewish scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament now. He began to see them, these these scriptures that he had studied and he knew as well as anybody. He began to see them in a different light. He began to see that everything in the Jewish scriptures was essentially a lead up to something brand new that God had done. That's something we spent a lot of time talking about last Sunday, these generations of stories of the relationship between God and his people that led to the most important step in God's plan to this point. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. Again, this is a verse we used last week. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. When God had things exactly the way he wanted them, when everything was ready, at that time God sent his son. And things really were 
weren't perfect for this, as perfect as they were going to be. Rome was expanding with a system of roads uh, that was unmatched. It allowed the world to become a much smaller place because you could reach farther. And suddenly, it, it wasn't this distant land you couldn't even imagine, but it was reachable. And it was right at, at the right time when everything would be documented and not forgotten. When it would be done in such a way that it could be declared all over the world. When that set time had come, the right time had come, God sent His Son. But therein lies some questions. And most of them start with the word why. Why did God have to send someone? Why did God have to send His Son? Why God in human form? Why not just another messenger? Why not another prophet? And why has a baby? It just seems so strange. And and why under the law? Why subject to the law? He could have come as a ruler, as a new law in and of himself. In fact, some people thought that's probably how he would come. To take charge and new world order and all of these things. And yet that's not how he came. But Paul actually helps us begin to answer that why question in the very next verse, verse 5. When he says this, God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. You see, God sent Jesus to do what laws and regulations hadn't been able to do, to do what prophets and judges couldn't do, to do what punishments and even exile could not do. The situation between God and his people was personal, and so God had to do something truly relational. A messenger wasn't enough. The goal was to move individual people, not nations and tribes and groups of people, but individual people into a personal relationship with him. And so at Christmas, God took the first step to remove the obstacles between us and himself. He began to remove the barriers between us. Again, this was personal, so he had to come in person. I've heard it said this way, uh, how would we know where we stood with God if God had not come to stand with us. How would we know where we stood with God if God had not come to stand with us? Again, a message, a letter, another prophet, none of it was going to work. God knew that actions speak louder than words, and so he took action. And he put on a demonstration, if you will, a demonstration of his love. It started with that promise 2,000 years before. Then he acted when he sent Jesus to earth. And 2,000 years later, we're still talking about it. That should tell you a lot about how much this matters. It's not a story that will ever stop being told. I mean, think about it this way. A lot of things have happened in the last 2,000 years. A lot of things in this world have happened in the last 2,000 years. And most of those things you and I know nothing or very little about. We can't name the names of more than a handful of exceptional events. We can't name the dates or give the details of more than a handful of exceptional events. I would say that even those of us who would consider ourselves history buffs, and there are some of you here, I know, still have a limit to the historical knowledge you can retain. How many things that really could have been considered significant happened in the last 2,000 years that were never recorded or have been forgotten? And yet the birth of a Jewish baby in a barn in Bethlehem is known all over the place. And so Paul, the same Paul that wrote at just the right time, he wrote a letter to Christians living in Rome after Jesus' resurrection and 
his ascension into heaven. And let me make this point of clarification. The, the fact that there were Christians living in Rome speaks to the fact that Jesus had in fact risen from the dead because if he hadn't, it's likely that his disciples, Jesus' closest friends and followers, would have never shown their faces again because they wouldn't have had this amazing story to tell about a Savior who predicted his own death and resurrection and then came through with it. They would have just faded into the background of history. They wouldn't have had a story to tell. And yet Paul writes this letter to Christians in Rome, and here's what he says. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And, and, and I don't want you to, to forget who wrote this, and, and I don't want you to miss how crazy this had to be for Paul to realize. Because he by now has certainly realized that the things that he did before, when it was his goal to wipe Christians off the face of the earth, he has to have realized by now that those things he was doing supposedly in the name of God, and I want you to understand that we speak poorly of Paul in that. You say, man, what a bad guy. He thought that what he was doing was for the best. He was doing it, he felt, in the name of God. And he's by now, no doubt, realized that those things were not of God. He realized that God knew all of those things that he did, all of those things that he was doing. And yet in the midst of Paul trying to wipe out Jesus' followers, Paul was still part of the us that Christ died for. You see, it's only when you understand the gravity of your sin that you can begin to understand just how amazing what God did for us truly is. In the midst of our sin, in spite of our sin, God demonstrated his love for us when he sent Jesus to die to pay the price for those very sins. Which actually brings up another question that you may have asked before. Why, why did Jesus have to die? Because it can, be a, it, it can be confusing enough to try to understand why God came as a baby instead of just popping down as a man. But why was the death so necessary? And a gruesome one at that. Why so violent? Why so public? Why couldn't Jesus pronounce everyone forgiven, right? Like call everybody out on a hillside before ascending into heaven and say, by the way, before I go, I hereby pronounce you all forgiven. You're welcome. Now go spread the word. I got to go. And then ascend into heaven. Why, why couldn't Jesus pronounce everyone forgiven? I mean, he was fully God. He, he certainly should have been able to do that. Wouldn't it have been much simpler it would have been, but it wouldn't have been as effective for several reasons. Mainly, no one would have believed him. Think about it this way. Several times as recorded in the, in the Gospels, Jesus heals someone. And that's hard to argue with. If someone's been blind from birth and suddenly they can see, or if someone's been able, unable to walk since birth and suddenly can walk, it's hard to argue with, with their healing. But in several of those situations, Jesus also proclaims their sins forgiven. And that never goes over very well with the religious leaders. They question whether anyone could have the authority to forgive sins but God, let alone this Jesus who they didn't believe was God. In Matthew chapter 9, we find one of those stories beginning in verse 1. It says, Jesus climbed into a boat and went back across the lake to his own town. And some people brought him a paralyzed man on a mat. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, Be encouraged, my child, your sins are forgiven. 
But some of the teachers of religious law said to themselves, that's blasphemy. Does he think he's God? Now, this is one of those cases, I love these, where, where Jesus actually deals with the, your sins are forgiven before he ever even heals the man. And the Pharisees, I don't know that they would question very hard the healing. God couldn't walk, now he can walk. They may try to come up with some other reasoning. But when he pronounces sins forgiven, that's, that's unacceptable. That's blasphemy. That's a big word to be thrown around there. Does he think he's God? And so if Jesus had just proclaimed everyone forgiven, it's likely that he wouldn't have been believed. And most likely his words wouldn't have survived the first century, let alone survived to be read by us today. But more importantly, actually this is much more important, here's the reason that Jesus had to die. Here, here's the reason he had to come in a, in a baby's body. Here's the reason God sent his son to grow up among mere humans and to die such a horrible death in such a public way, a death documented as such that we still talk about it in detail today. Here's why. Because God is the author of life. God is the author of your life. That's why. How many of you feel like you have life pretty well figured out? Anybody willing to put their hand up on that one? Yeah, I didn't think so, right? That's one of those things where every time you get to the point where you're like, man, I think I finally got life figured out, life comes along and reminds you who's boss, right? And that you really know very little. Life is sophisticated and complicated. It is difficult to ever feel like you have any kind of real grasp on what it means or what it's about. And on a physical level, your body is doing things right now that you don't even understand, that you're not even conscious of. For generations, our bodies were doing countless things that no one actually understood. And even today, science is still trying to figure out some of those things. There are unexplainable things that the human body does all by itself. And that sophisticated and complicated life, God is the author of that. God made that happen. He's the author of your life. And, and here's an important message of Christmas today. Don't miss this. When we dishonor the source of life, we dishonor God. And to be ungrateful for that life means we deserve to forfeit it. In other words, you and I, we owe our lives to God, but when we disregard Him, we forfeit our right to that life. And you might say, well, I've, I've never really disregarded God. Well, we need to be careful that we don't give ourselves quite that much credit because truthfully, every day we should wake up and say, thank you, God, for my life. And the next statement should be, yes, God, whatever the question is, yes, Whatever you want me to do, yes. Who am I to say no to the God who created life and created me and gave me life? Who am I to say no to him? And yet we, you and I, every day do just that. Every day we say no to God. Every day we say, I know better to God in some way. And it's crazy because you and I, we didn't choose our birth date. And we won't choose the day we die. But somehow in between those two dates, we decide that we're going to do whatever we want to do. And, and there are times where we kind of shake our fist at God. We all do this. Even those of us that would call ourselves Jesus followers, we shake our fist at God and we try to do it our own way. And we say, I know better. And we deserve to lose the greatest gift that God ever gave us, the gift of life. We are so, so selfish so much of the time. God has given us so much just by giving us life and we take it for granted, and we don't deserve 
the life that he's given us. We owe a debt to the giver of life that we cannot possibly pay. We owe the author of life our lives. But God demonstrates his own love for us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died in our place. He died for us. That debt we owe, we don't have to worry about it. It's been paid. And in that, God responded to our selfishness with the most selfless act possible. When Jesus, sinless himself, took our punishment, died on that cross, defeated death, and rose again. You know, so often we, we feel like we have to be the hero of our own story. We feel like, well, I, I, I should be able to handle anything. I should be able to take anything on. I should never have to ask for help. I should never need anything. And sometimes we get in our heads that even if we're willing to admit that we're sinful, even if we're willing to admit that there's distance between us and God, there's this small voice inside of us that says, you can, you can fix that on your own. You can overcome that gap on your own. The truth is, we can't, but it's okay. Because Jesus already did. He already did. He took our punishment to the cross, he defeated death, and he rose again. Now, after the resurrection, after Jesus rose from the dead, he, he sends his disciples and other followers to Jerusalem to wait on the Holy Spirit in Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 46. And he said, this is Jesus, he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. You are witnesses of all these things. And now I will send the Holy Spirit just as my Father promised, but stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. And these followers of Jesus, once the Holy Spirit comes, eventually they walk onto the streets of Jerusalem, the same streets, the same place where Jesus was arrested and dragged through the streets. And all around them are people the very people who had Jesus arrested and killed. And Peter and John, with God's power, heal a man who had been unable to walk from birth. The Holy Spirit has come on them, and they have the power to heal in the name of Jesus. And they heal this man who couldn't walk. And, and people are kind of shocked, as you would be if you've been around someone who, who couldn't and now can. And we read this in Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Peter saw his opportunity and addressed the crowd. Remember that same crowd. There were some of the same people who yelled crucify him. He addressed the crowd. People of Israel, he said, what is so surprising about this? And why stare at us as though we have made this man walk by our own power or godliness? For it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of all our ancestors, who has brought glory to his servant Jesus by doing this. This is the same Jesus whom you handed over and rejected before Pilate, despite Pilate's decision to release him. You rejected this holy righteous one and instead demanded the release of a murderer. In case you're not familiar with that part of the story, it was, it was traditional or policy or something that, that when it was time to do executions, that the people were given the opportunity at this particular day to release a prisoner. And so Pilate puts Jesus up with this guy named Barabbas, it was really supposed to be a setup. 
because there was no way they would release Barabbas. He was a bad dude. And yet they said, give us Barabbas. And so that's what he's talking about. He said, you even had the opportunity to take it back, to stop it from happening, and you made it happen anyway. And don't miss what he says in verse 15. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this fact. Looking into the eyes of the very people who had Jesus killed, he told them exactly what they'd done. And understand what Peter was really saying here was God allowed you to kill the author of life. The author of life gave his life away. This was part of the plan. You cannot take the life of the author of life. You killed him, but God raised him from the dead. God sent his son into the world as a baby to grow up like us and live among us so that he could give what we would not give and what we owed our lives to the author of life. You see, Jesus' death demonstrated so much. It demonstrated the the, the absolutely undeniable magnitude of our ingratitude. It was true of the people then, it's true of us now. It demonstrated the severity of our offense. We disregarded the author of life, but the truth is Jesus' death and resurrection also demonstrated the magnitude of his love for us, and it's unmatched. It's unmatched. You see, love cannot rightly be demonstrated without sacrifice. We throw the word love around like nothing today, but words often become cheap. Love, real love, involves sacrifice. To say it in a kind of cheesy but memorable way, love must be shown to be known. Tend to remember things that rhyme. You cannot demonstrate love without sacrifice. You'll, you'll never truly know how someone feels about you until you see what they'll sacrifice for you. Stacy almost always lets me have the bigger piece of pie or the last cookie or, or whatever. And I know that that sounds really cheesy and really lame, but I know that that's like a way that she really is expressing her love. And obviously she does it quite often. <laughs> you get this, right? It, 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 when someone is willing to give something up for you, that speaks to a deeper level of love than just saying it. How they feel about you becomes much clearer. Romans chapter 5, we read verse 8 earlier. I want to backtrack one verse. And read verses 7 and 8. It says this, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, God needed Christmas. God needed Christmas to demonstrate and document his love for us. A bunch of rebellious Selfish human beings. When the set time had fully come, when everyone had given up hope, when no one was looking for it, when the Roman Empire had laid the groundwork for the message to be distributed, when the set time had fully come, a Jewish carpenter finds out that his fiancée is pregnant. And he's trying to figure out what to do because he knows it's not his. And that it'll bring shame. He doesn't know whether to marry her, to protect her, or to flee, to protect himself. He doesn't know what to do. In Matthew chapter 1, beginning of verse 20, as he, he being Joseph, that Jewish carpenter, as he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. 
Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So many years ago it had been spoken about, and now it was happening, and the world was never going to be the same. You see, we needed to see it to believe it. We needed to know the story, to know the story was about us. And it wasn't enough just to tell the story. It wasn't enough just to say it. God had to send his son to pay the price that we owed in such a way that once we realized it, once we embraced who Jesus was and what he did, we would never, ever doubt God's love for us again. You see, God had to be with us so we could know he was for us. We needed a demonstration, and so God needed Christmas. And maybe today is the first time that the whole idea clicked for you. Or if that's the case, we're going to sing a song together here in just a moment. And if this is the first time this idea has clicked for you and you've never become a follower of Jesus, you've never been baptized into him, we, we would love to talk to you about that this morning. That invitation is always open, but we'd love to talk to you about that. Or if you've been around New Life for a while, but you haven't become a, a part of the family here at New Life, you haven't joined the church here at New Life, our fellowship, our congregation, we would invite you to think about that as well. And if you've got that decision to make today, again, we'd love to talk to you about that. Or if you just need prayer this morning, we'd be happy to pray with you. Let's pray. God, you have given us so many gifts. But none compare to the sacrifice, the sacrificial gift that you gave when you sent Jesus to die for our sins. God, I pray that we would never lose sight of what that means for our lives. And God, we'll still have selfish moments, and we're still a bunch of sinners. God, I pray that you'd help us to do better. Help us to keep our our focus in the right place. Help us to actually wake up every morning and say, God, what would you have for me to do today? We deserve nothing that you've given us, and yet you give it freely. You give us the opportunity to spend eternity with you in heaven. God, as we move into this time of communion, I pray we would never, never take for granted that sacrifice and that gift. Help that to be our focus as we take communion together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.